they are in the shape of an inverted U. Sorry, Jane. They're a shape of an inverted U. And what that inverted U was, it was an ancient Roman mail route. Uh, if you were a mailman at that time, your first stop would be there at Ephesus, and you'd go to Smyrna, and then you would go to Pergamum and Thyatira, and then you'd go up to Sardis, and uh, you'd go down to Philadelphia and Laodicea. I think I got most of them in there. Uh, but you, you, you go around the horn, and that's how you got your mail. That's how you received packages and packages from Air, uh, Amazon and things like that. Uh, Ephesus was a loveless church. They lost that first love. Smyrna was the... Uh, you all got a little uh, piece of rock, myrrh. Uh, they were the suffering church. When we went up to uh, Pergamum, we saw that they were the worldly church trying to zip up the world and the church together. Uh, then we went to Thyatira. That was the church that had uh, erroneous doctrine within its congregation that they refused to do anything about. And today we're going to wind up going to those last three churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And let's go ahead and take a letter out of that bag that God gave to John to take to those churches. So let's, let's read those other churches' mail. Revelation 3.1 says, To the angel of the church of Sardis, write these words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are D-E-A-D. Let's look what the uh, Lord says to the church of Philadelphia. Let's take that letter out of the bag. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Let's look at that third letter to the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Let's look at the reality on the ground that existed in these churches. Let's just wind up real quick. Let's go straight to Sardis. Sardis was the premier city. It was the capital city of a kingdom, the Lydian kingdom. Back in the, uh, there, back in the day, there used to be a phrase called, the, called or, or, uh, or that went like, he is wealthy as Croesus, or he's as rich as Croesus. Anybody ever heard that? Started about the 15th century, from what I understood. Uh, but Croesus was the king of the kingdom of, of uh, the Lydian kingdom. And what made this kingdom so wealthy is that they had gold mines. And the capital city of this kingdom was, was Sardis. It was originally built up on a plateau, a mesa. A mesa. Uh, and as the city grew, they kind of had to go down to the bottom of the hill. Uh, but it, it was a wealthy city. And up on a hill, man, it's easy to be, it's easy to be fortified because you see people coming from a mile away. Uh, and if you're surrounded by rugged terrain, it's hard to get up on top of the hill. And they got confident and they got cocky and they got uh, overconfident. And what happened was as soon as somebody gets overconfident, you know what happens. They got defeated one time, and a few years later, they turned around and got defeated another time. The city itself was destroyed in A.D. 17 by an incredibly powerful earthquake, with the epicenter being not too far away in an adjoining town. Uh, it freaked everybody out. And what happened was uh, they, they, the, the, wealthy, the city was so wealthy that whenever the city collapsed in A.D. 17, the Roman emperor offered them money to rebuild. And the place had so much money, Sardis had so much money, they said, no, we got this. We got plenty of money. That would sort of like being the equivalent of New Orleans refusing federal disaster relief from the federal government. Uh, that's what this city did. They had, you know, they had more money than Carter had liver pills. It was a very wealthy city. Uh, but as, as they kind of got defeated and defeated and defeated, and they kind of became a shell of a city that they used to be because they never really recovered from the earthquake. They never really recovered from, uh, from being overtaken. And if, if you've been to Detroit in the last 10, 15 years, or Cincinnati or Cleveland in the last 10 years, they're still cities, but they're not like they used to be. Uh, you know, Detroit used to be Detroit. It was the kind of a crown jewel up north. But you know, today, it's, it's not that way. Neither is Cleveland, neither is Cincinnati. They are, they are not the towns they used to be. Sardis was never the town that she used to be. She never fully recovered. She had money, but she never fully recovered. There was a church in that city. And that 
church's journey actually reflected their culture. They started off strong. They started off doing all the right things. People with money were getting saved, so they built a nice fine church, hired a good preacher, had all kinds of ministry. They had all kinds of money. They were making budget. But it was just a building. It was just people. They weren't really engaged in the mission of the church. It was God bless us for and no more. And what began to happen is they looked just like the city. They, they were strong. They were pretty on the outside. But on the inside, there was no growth. There was no maturity to where they were going. They built a beautiful church, hired a preacher, but they stopped reaching out. The voice says something to them. When I say the voice, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going back to the second sermon in this series where it says I turned around and the voice touched me. The voice didn't say anything good about this church, and I'm going to tell you why. This church in Sardis, it wasn't sick, it wasn't unhealthy, it wasn't diseased, it was dead. What can you say about something that's dead? Even when you go to a funeral home and you see somebody up there laid out, what do you say to people? Oh, they look so good, like they're sleeping. Everybody knows that that is not the case. You can't say too much good about a dead corpse. And that's why Jesus, he has nothing good to say about them because they're not sick. The head of the church, the high priest of the church, says, y'all are dead. But if you would have looked at their Facebook page, they would have looked alive. If you would have looked at their church calendar, you would have thought that they were alive because they were booked from, from, uh, from stern to bow. But what happened was their faith in Jesus stopped growing. I read this quote, and I, I don't remember which particular uh, commentary I, was, I, I read this in, but I loved it. It says that a growing faith will always stay somewhat immature. A growing faith will always stay somewhat immature. What that means to me is this. You never get too old to go to a Bible study. You never arrive in your faith to a place where you can let somebody else do the work and you don't. You never get to a place where, oh, I've read my Bible all I need to. You never arrive to the place where, oh, i prayed all I need to. You never arrive at a place where your faith has finally reached it. You don't have to do anything else. That's not the case. A growing faith always stays somewhat immature. Sardis' members believed that they were mature. They had grown. They had arrived spiritually. And they were resting on the victories of the past instead of having a vision for the future. If you're a little bit interested, I told you there were three primary ways to interpret the book of Revelation of these particular letters. The letters were written to just those seven churches. First interpretation. The second interpretation, that it was written for the church from then to now. The third interpretation is that each one of those churches represent a particular historical dispensation of time within the church age. This church, the Sardis church, the church that was dead, if you follow historical dispensationalism, this makes up what's called the Reformation period or when... Luther uh, nailed, nailed his uh, treaties on top of the, uh, onto the church door. Now, if this, is, if this was the case, and to me this is probably the most interesting of all of these interpretations, the church that was dead, that was a former shell of itself, would have been the Roman Catholic Church. If that's what you look at in this interpretation, I'm not saying I do, I'm just saying it's interesting, but that would have been the, that would have been the historical age of the church that this particular church is, a, is attributed to. I'm not going to any, unpack any more of that for you, but to me it was just simply, uh, it was very interesting. Although the Sardis church, you can take that slide off, although the, ch the church didn't know it, they were declared dead. Not by a church consultant, not by a pastor, but by the head of the church, by the high priest of the church. He said that you're a dead church. 
And you might be saying, well, preach, what, what made that church dead? Why, why did Sardis die? What was, what was the disease? Well, man, it's the same disease that shatters every church. It's the same disease that makes any church shut down. It's the same disease that causes every conflict in the church, and that's sin. It's, it was there, it's here, it's, it's what happens. Sin will shutter the church. It will stop the mission of the church. The same thing that causes churches to shudder today, sin. Let's go on. The church at Philadelphia and Smyrna were the only churches uh, in this entire, these two chapters that Jesus doesn't have a single word of condemnation for. So when we arrive at that church of Philadelphia, an interesting thing about Philadelphia is that it was a city that was leveled by the same earthquake that leveled Sardis back in A.D. 17. It was that same earthquake that leveled both these. In fact, the epicenter for that particular earthquake was in Philadelphia. And the walls came down. People were crashed under, uh, crushed underneath their home. The, when the walls came, people were killed. And it... it, 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 it uh, it bred such a, a, a spirit of fear in those people and in that community that for years afterwards, many people wouldn't even live in the city because they lost a mom or a father or a child or, a, or, or you know, grandma and grandpa. They, they lost somebody they loved and they didn't trust living in the city walls anymore. So they would just live outside the city. And this is where that church would have been. When John wrote this letter to, uh, Philly, uh, in, to Philadelphia, uh, there would have been people still at this time who had a fear of going back inside the city or staying there overnight. So when he wrote this, he was writing to a, a culture of fear. He was writing to a culture where people were scared of their government. They were scared of their society. They were scared of everything. And that's to the people. Those were the people that this letter was written to. There was a fear that was probably yet to be disappeared in that particular city. But somehow that church in Philadelphia... They still figured out some way to reach people who were carrying around backpacks in their town. They were still finding some way to, to reach a lost and dying culture, a lost and dying city in Philadelphia. Now, this is interesting because when, when we think of these churches, we think, you know, there are thousands of people and things like that. That wasn't the case in Philly. The Bible says in Revelation 3.8, I know that you have little strength. Now, when we think that, we've, we, lots of times we think of maybe faith or something like that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I know you have little strength. What he's saying is, I know you're a small church. They didn't have many people that went to church there. They didn't have many people there to do the ministry or to, to contribute to the budget or to teach Sunday school or things like that. It was just simply a small church. Yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Philly was a small church, but somehow they still made an impact on their culture. It was a small little old rinky-dink church, but somehow they still had a way to, to make an impact on their community. And what were they doing, Mike? It's very simple. It's what we're trying to do. They loved God, loved people, and they were living like Jesus. That was the impact that church made. It wasn't a mega church. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a medium-sized church. It was a doinker. It was a small church. It was a little church. But just because the voice, listen, just because the voice, the voice is Jesus. Let's again a call back to the second, the second sermon. Just because the voice didn't have anything good, to, uh, just because the voice didn't have anything bad to say about Philadelphia, can I tell you something? It doesn't mean they didn't have problems. In fact, I can tell you right now that. Good God Almighty, Kenny. All right. Hey, hey. No, your dad's in church. 
just because the voice didn't have anything bad to say about Philly doesn't mean that there wasn't anything bad. And I'm going to tell you why I know that that church had to have struggles and they had to have difficulties because it was made up of people just like you and me. Sinners, imperfect people, selfish people. So I know that church had to have some struggles because it, they were all made up of people like, like us. Church, we were never intended to be a museum for saints. We've always been intended to be a hospital for sinners. We do not come to church because we think we're better than everybody. In fact, the reason we come to church is we know that we're messed up and we need the strength and mercy and grace of God. We're not here to be Pharisees, man. We're here because we're broken. We don't come here to hide our wounds. We come here to get our wounds healed. And we can still be a church like Philadelphia and still have trouble. We can still be that church and not have everything clicking and on, on all eight cylinders. That's okay. Church, we are a fellowship of those who know they're weak. But we know that we need the strength of God. In spite of the struggles of, of, of the Christians, undoubtedly, they had there at Philadelphia. They were faithful. They were faithful with their worship. They were faithful with their service to the Lord. They may have been a small church, but they were sure. What they didn't have in quantity, they made up in quality. They never used a lack of anything as an excuse not to do ministry. They never said, oh, we don't have enough people to do that. We can't reach Philadelphia. They never said, we don't have enough money to do that. We can't reach Philadelphia. They didn't say, oh, we don't have enough smart people to do that, to reach Philadelphia. They never used any of that small stuff, small thinking as an excuse not to be the church in Philadelphia church what excuse do we have oh we don't have all the people that a St. John's does or we don't have a school we don't have that but can I tell you what we do have we have the voice we have the voice who stands among the lampstands how dare we make excuses for our God God saying I will bless you I will work for you I will pour out revival and awakening upon you church the one who stands among the lampstands knows our hearts knows our obedience Knows of our spiritual disciplines. Laodicea, let's go there. Laodicea was a banking center of the region. It was a financial center of a region. I want you to think maybe of, of a downtown New York. I want you to think of maybe Wall Street, something like that. They were a very wealthy town. They had a very thriving textile industry. It was probably in this neck of the woods where um, wool was first dyed black. Uh, they had gladiator games there. They had a medical school there. One of the ancient uh, medical schools was a, an ophthalmology school. Uh, doctors who worked with the eyes and they had a salve there that was known throughout the entire region a, a healing salve so when we read those verses about get salve for your eye and, and buy your garments for me understand Laodicea they knew exactly what he was talking about because they had the wool industry they knew exactly what he was talking about because they had that eye school the medical school so when Jesus said all these things, he was speaking directly to their culture. He was speaking their language. He had seen their, the Wikipedia page. He knew what the city had going on and where it was wrong. He knew what was going on in that church. Laodicea was a town, very wealthy town, but their water stunk. Literally, it stunk. They didn't have a source of water there. So they had to pipe in their water um, from Colossia down the road. The Colossia was the same church that uh, the, the book of Colossians, that's where, that's where Colossia was, which is five, down, uh, five miles down the road. And they would pump that water in through these ancient aqueducts. And they're still standing. These aqueducts are still standing today. If you went over there into Turkey, you would see them. But what would happen is when that hot water came there from Colossia and it was pumped five, five miles, it would go through those, those clay uh, water lines. By the time it got there, it was no longer hot. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. Well, that wasn't the only place they got their water. There was also a town very close to them called uh, Heracolips. Um, and it was snow 
that had melted and come down. So they would pump it down to the, the city of, of, uh, of Laodicea. But by the time the cold water got there, guess, guess what it was? It was lukewarm too. So no matter which direction it came in, if it got there to you, you had to either heat it up or to cool it down so you could use it. You know, nobody wants, you know, water that's body temperature. Uh, nobody wants that. So you had to do something with it. Now, when we read that text, in fact, let's just read it together. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, for a long time, we thought cold was bad and hot was good. You know, lukewarm's no good. Maybe lukewarm sitting on the middle of the fence. But I got a feeling that's really not the way the first century reader would have read that. Hot being good or cold being bad. Because you know what? I, I like cold tea. How about y'all? Or maybe a cold soda. So cold water has a very useful reason. Coffee, I like my coffee hot. We need to pray for these people who are going around with ice in their coffee. We need to pray for them. It's a sign of the times. But, you know, you want your coffee hot. Or there's some cocoa hot. So hot's not bad and cold's not good and the other way around. So what's that all about? I know your deeds are neither hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you make me want to gag. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. But don't you realize just how wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked you are? Church, we've always thought about hot, cold, good, and bad, but that's not really the point. Laodicea had that horrible water, and when Jesus said, your water is so bad, it makes me want to gag, the church knew exactly what he was talking about. It wasn't hot being good and cold being bad. It was about the church being useful to God. It was about the church being able to be driven and pushed forward. By God. And when the voice started talking about hot and cold and lukewarm water, the Laodicean church knew exactly what he was talking about because their city water was horrible. There was always people in their congregation putting on Facebook just how horrible the water department was doing in uh, Laodicea. But Jesus told, them, uh, Jesus told them and reminded them that y'all are just as stinky as the water you're complaining about. You're just as horrible as the tepid water that you despise. You make me want to gag. Two-thirds of the churches in this text. Uh, in this text that we've read today, chapter 3, Sardis and Laodicea, they didn't receive one single word of praise from Jesus. Laodicea didn't get one single word. Sardis didn't get one single good word. But church, not everyone in those troubled churches was wrong. Not everyone in those troubled churches were walking on the wrong side of the fence. Not everyone in those churches were guilty. Look at what the Bible says, Revelation 3, 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not done what? Uh, this is what that means. Not everybody's, not everybody's drunk the Kool-Aid. Not everybody falls into this category of Sardis that is a dead church. Not everybody's there. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. They kept their clothes free from stain, and some of them weren't staying in the presence of God. But church, I want you to understand, it took more than just a few people in the church staying true. What Jesus was saying, I want everybody to be true. But I want you to understand something. God will even bless those two or three of the church. He notices them there. He knows the remnant. Look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and those who honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And these last few words to me is the money shot. 
I will know the distinction between those who serve God and between those who do not. God knows who serves and who does not. He knows those who are committed and those who are not. Those who work and those who do not. Church, the Lord knows who belongs to Him. Hebrews 6.10, love this. God is not unjust. He will not forget what? Church, God will remember what we do for the kingdom of God here. And the beautiful thing is, what, however long we have to work for the kingdom of God here, whether it's 30 days, 30 years, or 100 years, all of that will be deposited into your eternal account in heaven. None of that's forgotten. Not a single cup of cold water, not a single box of Valentine's candy, not a single hot dog given at trunk or treat in somebody's hand in Jesus' name will be forgotten. Not one day of pray and go. Not one will be forgotten. Church, the Lord was active, and he was interested in each of those churches. And between you and me, I can understand him being interested in Smyrna. That was a good church. I can, be, I can understand Jesus being interested in Philadelphia. They, those were good churches. But church, the Lord was active and interested in all of those churches. Some of the congregations were faithful and obedient, but some were unfaithful. Some were uncommitted. Some were out of tune with the Holy Spirit, which is how Jesus remains active and interested in the church. Each one of these churches, from Ephesus to Laodicea, were giving a health report by the one who stands among the lampstands. There was still hope. In all of the churches, there was still hope. There was still hope of keeping their lampstand in their city. And Jesus said, here's your hope. You've got to repent. You have to change. So that's the reality on the ground. Let's look at the preferred future, the preferred future cast that the voice gives out. I believe that all of these churches had a future. Some of them had a, a very poor future. Not all of their futures were so bright that it required shades, but all of them had a future. Ephesus, the loveless church, Smyrna, the suffering church, Pergamum, the world of church, Thyatira, the sin-tolerating church, Sardis, the dead church, Philadelphia, the loving or the trusting or the faithful church, Laodicea is a lukewarm church. <coughs> you know, if we could get Jesus to the side and we would just ask him privately, Jesus, between you and me, which, which two of those churches are your favorites? And he'd say, oh, I don't play favorites. I would probably say, come on, you and I both know it's probably between Smyrna and Philadelphia, really. Which one do you like the best? Then he would probably begin to quote scripture to me. Probably something out of the book of Romans. Where it says, God does not show. Really? I think that now is a great time to ask this question if God has favorites. Because we just looked at seven churches. And in fact, do you remember who wrote the book of Revelation? Remember? John, you remember what John's name was? John, John the, okay. John wrote one of the Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, this is the way John describes himself. All right, it's it's quite a flex, but this is what he says in the book of John about himself. John twenty one twenty. Peter turned and he does this four different times in this particular gospel. I just like this one. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus. That's kind of cocky. You know, John saying, oh, yeah, Peter, there you are, but he loves me. And then I'm thinking, well, do you have favorites? I mean, if I was John, I would have put that down there, too. That's quite a flex. But does he have favorites? 
Oh, he said he doesn't show favoritism, so what do you do? And, and I come up with this. I don't think God sees favorites, but he knows intimates. He doesn't see favorites, but he does know intimates. He knows those who passionately pursue him. He knows those who purposefully live for the kingdom of God and want to be close to him. He knows those who refuse to walk back their faith, no matter what a celebrity says, no matter what culture says, no matter what a fuzzy headed college professor says, no matter what Congress says, they will never walk back their faith in Jesus. He doesn't see favorites, but he knows intimates. He doesn't say John the favorite. He says John the beloved. He knows the intimates. John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep. I know who's intimate. I think I know what made certain churches pop like Smyrna and Philadelphia. And I think I know what made some churches flop like everybody else. Because they never stopped growing in their faith. They never stopped serving the Lord. They never stopped giving to the Lord. They never stopped praying to the Lord. They never stopped reading His Word. They never stopped spending time with Him privately. They never stopped praying. They never stopped loving their communities like Jesus. They never walked back their faith regardless of the size of their church or regardless of the size of their persecution. They lived a risky life. I don't. I said this last night. I'm not. I'm still not quite sure how it landed. But church, if you're going to live for the kingdom of God, understand that there's risk involved. In fact, Jesus said, "Consider the cost before you place your hand to the plow." Don't look back. Now, preacher, are you saying that, that doing kingdom works risky? Yeah, man, you're going to risk your reputation. You're going to risk relationships. You could risk your job. You could, you could risk your, your place in society. You can risk what people think about you. You can risk all kinds of things. There is a risk involved when you serve God. But let me tell you this. It is never reckless. It's not riskless, but it's definitely... It's not without its risk, but it's definitely not reckless. But why? Because God's got all these things straightened out, and He's got it on point. He knows what's going down. He simply asks us to be obedient. He asks us to be dedicated. He asks us, he asks us to be all about the kingdom. Church, the Lord said it. This is what the voice says in Revelation 2.8. The Lord said, because you have kept my word, You've not denied my name. You've not walked back. That's what the voice said. The voice says in 2.10, Because you've obeyed my instructions to endure and to be patient. He's saying these are the things that make the difference in the churches like Smyrna and like Philadelphia. Sardis, I'm sorry, um, Smyrna and Philadelphia weren't favorites, but they were intimates. They kept hold of their faith and they fell more in love with Jesus. They never stopped being amazed at His grace. Uh, Y'all remember that little trick that the old folks used to do with with the young guys and say, let me get your your nose? I remember when I was three and my father's dad, uh, Buren Fogerson, 6'4", called him tiny. I remember, that's the first time it ever happened to me, I remember my papa doing that to me. And I remember exactly what I said for an hour. Do it again. How did that old man get my nose off my face? Will he ever give it back? Will it grow back? Do it again. And he laughed and I laughed until the day he died. And he may not have known beans for apple butter, but he and I were able to share that story. It meant something. 
And as that three-year-old kid, I was amazed at how, to, how Grandpa Fogerson could do that. And I would just say, do it again. I would not stop being amazed at what he did. Church, as a born-again Christian, we must have that same childlike sense of amazement, being amazed by God over and over and over. Do it again, God. Do it again. That expectation is in the church like Smyrna and Philadelphia that we're just amazed by God. Do it again. Save more. Heal more. Restore more. They never stopped being amazed. And I think that was one of those differences. They didn't slow down. They doubled down. They didn't fear their lost neighbors. They shared the love of Jesus with their lost neighbors. Somebody needs to hear this. They didn't tear down the church. They didn't, they didn't tear down their church. They didn't tear down their angel. They built up. They encouraged. And they solved conflicts instead of starting them. Question. If there was a letter that started off like this, write this to the church in the 62233. What do you think our letter would look like? How do you think our letter would sound if we could pull it out of the bag? What would he see? What would he say? We already know that he blesses the church who walks in obedience and fullness in his presence. We already know that He shudders the churches that are loveless, that are tolerant of sin, that are worldly, that are dead or lukewarm. We know what He does to those churches. So church, as your pastor, I can tell you this. Either CFBC is headed in the right direction or we're headed in the wrong direction. I don't think there's a middle of the road. So what deeds does Jesus see us doing? What does Jesus have against us? Remember, that's, those are the words that the voice uses. I know your deeds, and then He'll get down there and says, but I have this against you. What would he have against us? And knowing that Jesus doesn't have favorites, but he has intimates. He knows the intimates. What would that letter say? I believe that the key to unlocking a church's health and vitality is found in the exegesis of two verses. Revelation 3, verse 1 through 2. The angel of the church, and let's just put the 62233 right. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Church, say seven spirits of God. Raise your hand, this is the first time you've ever seen that whole idea of the seven spirits of God. Okay, who would be honest? Raise your hand, that's the first time you've ever thought about the seven spirits of God. All right. Well, what, what's that? I know about God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. What's the soul? Seven spirits of God. And by the way, it's, it's important for you to know that he says this to the church at Sardis. That was the church that was dead. Some people think that this could be uh, pointing back to a passage in Isaiah well, the prophet Isaiah is actually using um, some descriptors for the, the Ruach Hokadish or the Holy Spirit. Um, a shoot will come up in the spring from the stump of Jesse, and the roots of branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, and on and on and on. Some people may, some, some interpreters said that this is a call back to Isaiah, chapter 1, I think. I don't think it is. It could be, but I don't think it is. It's not what I'm going to go with. Um, some people think that uh, this, this seven spirits is a callback to Zechariah. Zechariah, in, in his book, God gave him a prophecy and he woke him up. It's very similar to John. He gave him a vision. And the picture that Zechariah paints is a, is a menorah, a flame of seven 
branches. I'll just go ahead and read it for you real quick, just so you know where it's at. Zechariah 4, 1 through 4 and verse 6. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. Zechariah, as a man is wakened from his sleep, he asked me, man, what do you see? I answered, man, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels through the lights. And again, we're looking at the menorah. Also, there are two olive trees by it on the right of the bowl and the other on its left, both of those trees putting oil back into the menorah. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? What is this menorah? What are these seven lights? He said to me, well, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my. So those lights in Zechariah was a reference to the Holy Ghost. Just like it was in Isaiah. I, I, that could be, that's pretty cool, but I don't think that's it either. In apocalyptic literature, there's a, uh, the numbers are symbolic. They, they, they mean something. How many spirits of God are there? I know that I'm wearing you out with minutiae detail, but promise me, we will land the plane and you'll say, that is incredible. Or you won't. Um, seven is a number for complete or whole. I read an old, old dictionary, this, uh, an old Greek dictionary this week. It said it also means promise kept, which makes sense. If something complete, it means that something has been done. So the idea of seven being completion or perfection or wholeness or entirety or a promised help, to me it makes sense. How many days in the week are there, church? Yeah. How, many time, how many statements did Jesus give from the cross? Yeah. Uh, how many times did uh, Joshua and the men walk around Jericho on that seventh day? Yeah. Seven. Seven is a number for completion or whole. How many churches are there in the seven churches of the Revelation 7. 7 means something. 7 means the fullness. Church, what if when Jesus said the seven spirits of God, what if what Jesus was saying, the entire fullness of the Holy Spirit is looking in at your church. He is keeping uh, tabs and keeping track of your church. The Holy Spirit is is aware of what's going on in churches like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and even dead ones like Sardis. Church, the same Holy Spirit that was keeping track of them is keeping track of us. Oh, preacher bull butter. I've never heard that before. Great, let's look at the Bible. Romans 8. You, however, are controlled not by your sinful nature, but you, church, are controlled by the Spirit. And here's the thing. If you're not controlled by the Spirit, you're still lost. Oh, preacher, I've never heard that. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, that means you're lost. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, before we go any further, by whose power did Jesus receive resurrection? Power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. Will also give life to your church by the power of the Spirit who lives in you. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit who is present in every church. The Spirit who is present in every believer. The Spirit. Isn't it ironic that the, resin, the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit that is in the church that Jesus says is dead, the church at Sardis, isn't it amazing that what they needed was just within grasp? I mean, it was within reaching distance. 
Jesus is saying the seven spirits of God are in your church. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same Spirit that gives birth to every born again Christian. The infilling of the, of the Holy Spirit for all those who ask. The Spirit that could have saved them. They said, no, we're good. We're alright. To me, it's sort of like somebody dehydrating to death when there's a spring within a foot from them. Or somebody starving to death in a farmer's market. What they needed was there. Jesus is saying it. The seven spirits of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we need more Holy Spirit. Man, He's already here. Reach out. He's not sent more to grace and less here. Some didn't think they needed the Holy Spirit. Some didn't have a theology that included the Holy Spirit. Some didn't even know who He was. But church, every one of those churches needed something and God had exactly what they needed for them to be restored. Their slides in unhealthy churches was gradual. It was incremental. It was a slow fade. That church, that last church of Laodicea, would you believe that that church had been around for 40 years before they were mentioned in Revelation chapter 3? This isn't a new church that Jesus was talking to. It wasn't a new work. It wasn't a church plant. It was an established church. I want you to understand something. Jesus loved Laodicea just as much as he loved Smyrna. Dead churches are not a good thing, but can I tell you something? Jesus still loves even dead churches. Jesus even loves small congregations. Don't, don't, don't despise the days of small things. When John wrote the letter to Laodicea, the lukewarm church, they had been there for 40 years because Paul talks about them in the letter to the Colossians. My, my, my. Can you imagine the slow fade that happened in that church? Let me talk to you as a pastor. You know how hard it is to watch somebody's relationship with God slowly fade? I can see it. I'll tell you what it looks like. Number one, their prayer time will kind of de-evolve into nothing more than God is good, God is great, let us thank Him for our food, amen. That's their prayer life. I can tell you, I can tell you what their giving looks like. The slow fade looks like, man, they were on top of their game. Then, then they begin to miss. They begin to miss. And they miss church for three or four weeks. And they don't make up. And then they'll give less and less. And then they won't make up. I, I, I've seen that a million times. The only time they read their Bibles is when they come to church. And usually they won't bring it that because the preacher's always going to put it up on the screen. a slow fade and you can always tell with their church attendance what used to be three or four Sundays a week goes down to two then two might go into one 
And then we may not see you for a couple months. Hey, what happened to so-and-so? And I'll tell you the excuse always I make. They'll be back. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I'm going to ask you one last question, and then what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to open up the invitation this morning because I feel like I've been released to do this today. In my pocket, I've got uh, some anointing oil. For some of you today, you need to make some decisions. You know what? I don't want to be like that dead church. I don't want to be like that lukewarm church. I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian. I don't want to be a dead Christian. I don't want to be a a worldly Christian. I don't want to be a sin-tolerating Christian. I want to be one of those Christians that have one of those fresh white garments on. I want to be one of those Christians that stayed with God. We don't walk back our faith no matter what. Preach, I, I want you to know, and I want this congregation to know, more importantly, I want my God to know that I'm not going to walk back. I'm going forward. I ain't scared. What I'd like to do for you this morning is I just want to bless you. I want to anoint your head with oil, that oil that represents the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Ghost so much this morning. I think it would be fitting. There's a buzz. Uh, I think it would be fitting if we would just simply, we would have a time of anointing. Every head is bowed, every eye closed. Church, I want to I want to ask you this question. If you attended school or if you attended work with the same regularity that you attended church, How long would it be before you got an incomplete in that class or you were on unemployment? Of all the spiritual disciplines, coming to worship is the the most simple. It's either that or tithing, one of the two. It's one of the two. But let me deal with that attendance thing. It's a spiritual discipline. Because the devil wants you to stay in bed. The devil wants you to get too busy to come to church. The devil wants you to put anything and everything else ahead of the Sabbath. And if you don't believe what I'm saying, then apparently you have another Bible than I do. Because the one I say, do not forsake the joining together with other believers as some are in the habit of doing. Mine says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So if you attended class or work the way you are committed to your attendance to church, what would your boss say? What would your professor say? Are you okay with that? Because here's the thing, you're not going to stand before your professor or your boss in eternity, but you will be spending an eternity with Jesus, and apparently he's keeping track of things like that. You've read the same two chapters I have. today if you would like to make a fresh renewed commitment a fresh renewed commitment I want to give you this invitation I just simply want to I won't pray for you a real long time I'm just going to anoint you and you can go back to your seat but if you would I'm going to ask you to stand I know my time's getting away from me sorry I'm going to ask you to stand if you would go ahead ladies almighty God in the name of Jesus As we go into this time of invitation, I pray for those who are going to come forward for the anointing. I pray for those who are going to come forward in commitment, in renewed faithfulness, 
in renewed restoration, in renewed dedication, Father, to the things of the Spirit, to the things of the kingdom of God. Dedication, Father, to spiritual disciplines and growing in their faith. Not just living on the victories of yesterday, but celebrating the vision for the future. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now, you would just do something incredible and spectacular here. And it's in Jesus' name.